Hi, everybody. This is Jean Nathan, and it is Crosstown Conversations. I don't know what week we are in COVID, because who knows, from December, shall we count, or just January, or February, or March, or April? Anyway, we're in it. To take your mind off it for a bit, uh, we're going to do um, an interview, uh, first of all, with a very interesting author who has caught up with a story about somebody I thought I knew, frankly, I learned a whole lot um, just reading the synopsis of your book, a book called Delta Justice, A Black Teen, His Lawyer, and Their Groundbreaking Battle for Civil Rights in the South. Um, the author is Matthew Von Meter. So I, I had read in history about Perez, um, and actually there's a synopsis of some of the really dastardly things he did that I didn't even know. Uh, the extent of which. Um, I've known Richard Sobel, and I certainly know Lola's Eric Eli and Lola's Eli extremely well. I've worked with them uh, in politics and, and all kinds of things. But um, I didn't know this story. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to really catch up with it and share it with um, our listeners because it was apparently a, a real landmark case that changed um, really the lives of a, a lot of um, African-Americans who were uh, being thrown into jail or worse uh, without trial. And this um, resulted in the end of that practice, so to speak, because uh, of course we're dealing with other levels of incarceration that are inappropriate today as well. Um, so Matthew, uh, tell me um, just quickly about yourself a little bit and how you got onto this subject and then let's dive in. Yeah, um, so I'm a journalist, reporter, um, sort of focused on criminal justice issues. And so the story in some ways was really, um, was a natural one for me, um, although I hadn't done too much history before. Um, and I really just, I was, um, so I was in graduate school in an MFA program at Columbia University. And I was, I was interviewing all of these lawyers for other pieces I was writing um, and, and realizing that, that really to have a, a educated conversation with them, I would need to take a class at the law school, which took me to a law school class, which took, which led me to this story because it is, you know, it's one that, you know, you didn't know about a lot of, Neurolinians don't know about, a lot of lawyers don't know about the story, yeah. even though it's a case that really set the foundation for the, the right to jury trial as we know it in the United States. So I just sort of ha happened upon it and that was, that was just about five years ago. And, um, I, I wanted to see who wrote the book about the story when I first heard it because it was such a good story and uh, nobody had. So you took it on. Um, all right, well, let's dive into it. Um, let's deal with the case first of all, and then we'll double back and talk a little bit more about um, Richard Sobel, who um, unfortunately just recently passed yeah. um, from lingering health issues. I don't think from COVID apparently, right. um, but um, he has certainly been a presence uh, in this city in, in many ways. And, and quite frankly, one of my personal experiences with him is that he and um, Lois um, uh, Eli, who lived uh, just a few blocks from where I live, um, would sit out on the steps in front of uh, Lois's house and I would come visit with them. So tell me the story. Yeah, so so the, the core of the story is really um, in, in the mid 60s with the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, um, there were, and this is a part of the civil rights movement I think we don't talk about enough, there was um, this army of lawyers that came down, mostly from the North um, and West, 
to to take the civil rights cases that needed to be filed these law all these lawsuits you know hundreds probably thousands of lawsuits that needed to be filed all over the south because because southern counties and municipalities were were mostly ignoring the mandates of the supreme court and and the the congress and so so you needed to file a lawsuit in basically every school district in the south in order to bring it into compliance and so richard sobel was one of these lawyers who came down initially just as a volunteer in 1965 in the summer um, to pick up, he <laughs> filed his first school desegregation case the, the, the day he arrived, or the day after he arrived. Um, and in, so he, he was taking, you know, dozens and dozens of cases, um, uh, mostly having to do with desegregation of public accommodations, but also because Richard Sobel was who he was, um, he took on um, some criminal defense cases as well, um, which is at the core of the story and get to it in a minute. Um, and then also a bunch of cases that were really quite innovative about um, employment discrimination, uh, particularly in Bogalusa. But the the core of this story is, you know, so at the same time as Richard Sobel is down from Washington, D.C., uh, volunteering with, with Lois Eli and his law partners, um, uh, <laughs> Gary Duncan, who's a, at the time 19-year-old black shrimper from from Boothville, Louisiana, down near the end of the Mississippi River. Um, he uh, was, you know, driving his truck down Highway 23 in Plaquemines Parish, where he lives, and saw two of his, you know, a nephew of his and a cousin um, about to get to get beaten up by, by four um, of their white classmates. And this was just a couple of weeks after the schools in Plaquemines had been desegregated. Uh, by a federal court, much to Leander Perez's chagrin, of course. Uh, di dictator, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> um, uh, with a really mixed legacy. And he had been in power for about 50 years, almost 50 years at that time. Um, so so anyway, and sort of, you know, staunch segregationist. Anyway, so so in the midst of all of this, you know, really high sort of racial tensions and political tensions in Plaquemines Parish, you know, Gary broke up this fight that was about to happen on the side of the road and in doing so he touched one of the white kids on the on the arm um and the next thing he knew he was arrested and he was charged with battery and th this was a fairly common form of intimidation frankly not just in the south and not just during jim during um this, the jim crow era but but particularly there and then and um instead of lying down and taking it gary duncan um you know to hear him tell it mostly because of his mother's insistence that he shouldn't plead guilty to something he didn't do. He uh, he he lawyered up, and he found uh, he found Richard Sobel and uh, the law firm of Collins, Douglas, and Eli, which was the, the the firm. You know, three young black attorneys who were handling much of the civil rights load in the city of New Orleans and in this part of the in that part of the state. So. Um, you know, what started as this really junky little like Jim Crow misdemeanor snowballed into, um, you know, a, a, a sort of outsized case um, that became about the constitutional right to jury trial, which, you know, is what lay people call a technicality, right? It actually has nothing to do with Gary Duncan's guilt or innocence. That was determined at his trial, which, you know, went about as fairly as you might imagine. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in sort of a foregone conclusion. And Richard Sobel being a smart lawyer, you know, threw every objection he could at the, um, at the prosecution. And the one that stuck with the U.S. Supreme Court was his argument that Gary should have been given a jury trial 
because at the time battery in Louisiana was punishable by up to two years in prison. Um, and Louisiana had sort of an idiosyncratic jury system, um, as did a lot of states, because they didn't technically have to offer juries. I think it's something that surprises a lot of people and that until 1968, that really? part of the constitution was considered to apply to the federal government. And so if you were being prosecuted by the federal government, you had a, a right to a jury trial in almost every case, but, but it didn't apply to the states. So all the states offered juries, but they didn't have to. And there was no systematic way of determining when you got one um, that, was, that was on the national level because every state could make up its own mind. And Louisiana, as, as usual, was um, particularly idiosyncratic in its jury system. So, so Gary and, and, and Richard Sobel brought the case up to the U.S. Supreme Court and ended up winning a real, you know, landmark decision um, about the right to jury trial, Duncan versus Louisiana in 1968. So is, is Gary Duncan, uh, he's still alive, I imagine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gary lives in Harvey. Yeah. It, it was bewildering for me when I first got, I came here from the north. Mm -hmm. In 1972, first working for George McGovern, of all things in Louisiana, that was interesting. Um, and then wound up in 1973, uh, moving here for business reasons. And um, I have to say, I was very naive about how recently the state was segregated. Mm -hmm. Not um, naive about racial um, attitudes and discretion in a more general sense, but... Um, I wasn't here for segregation right. and um, I, I had no idea how close it was. Yeah. Um, so there's stories like this that um, I, I'm, I'm still to this day learning about. Um, how, how do you view what happened then in the context of today's, um, I would, I would say we're almost in a, a in a kind of civil war all over again in that there seems to be um, a, a lot of elements of the, of the political schism in the country between, um, uh, let's say, more conservative voters and more liberal voters. And, and, and both of those terms to me are meaningless at this point because I don't think most conservatives are truly conservative. And I think a lot of people get slapped with the term liberal just because they're human. <laughs> in their um, uh, empathy and, and perception of, of their responsibility to other citizens of the country. But how, how do you see today's situation, having studied this um, incident and, uh, it, and the fight that it took to correct it, uh, what is it going to take for us to correct what we're dealing with today? And how would you describe what we're dealing with today in comparison to that era? Yeah, the, the, big, the big one, the big question. Um, you know, I, I, I often joked as I was doing the, the research for the book, which largely, which consisted in, in interviewing dozens of people, um, but also spending a lot of time in archives and, and you know, re reading, reading people's mail from the 1960s and such. And, um, and I always used to joke with my, or with my friends during the process that, that, you know, deja vu was my biggest job hazard. Um, you know, a lot of the same issues that we're debating now were really hot topics in the late 60s in New Orleans and elsewhere um, had to do with um, policing of communities of color and poor communities that had to do with the role of the federal government in righting those sorts of wrongs versus the role of state and local government, um, you know, had, had to do with, with 
geographical um, stereotypes and you know it was it was mostly northern frankly largely Jewish lawyers coming down from mostly New York City and Chicago and some other places and Richard Sobel fits into that type pretty neatly um, because there just weren't enough southern lawyers to do all of that work you know and in some ways that's I mean they're they're you know we don't deal with that issue in quite the same way now but you know, there are a lot of places where there just aren't, that are not civil rights law hubs or whatever, where, where there, there, it's really hard to get a case through, for instance. Um, and, and yet, you know, increasingly, I think we're realizing that all, you know, this is not an urban rural thing or a north south thing. I mean, listen, I, <laughs> I live in Detroit, Michigan, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're a city that, uh, you know, where it's it's hard to be smug about our own racial history, even though you know, as someone who grew up in the North, you know, I, I think I grew up a little bit smug about the North's role in America's racial past. And I think one of the, for me, you know, I, so I've made eight, eighteen trips down to New Orleans since starting this book, and I had never been there before, and spent a lot of time, um, sort of cumulatively, in in New Orleans and, and Plaquemines Parish and other places around there. And, and I think it, it has given me um, a lot of perspective into the things about this, the, the, the current struggle that we're in that are universal um, and also the, the sort of idiosyncrasies of-, of Oh, so the, how would you, how, let's pinpoint that. Yeah, um, sure. So, so what, what exactly does that mean? What, what is the perspective? What is your perspective? So I, so I feel like um, it is, it is fair to say that we're, we're at a moment where people are calling into question some of the fundamentals of the criminal justice system. And I think that the last time that that really happened um, was, was, in the, was in the 60s and 70s, um, unless you consider the, you know, the sort of rise of mass incarceration to be that. And, um, and so what, what that looks like is, is like, what, like, what is it that we consider a crime? Um, uh, we are sort of in a moment of, of sorting that through like what what do we consider to be transgressive behavior and like what what should be done with people who transgress right um what what kind of protections should they be afforded and and because you know the thing about jim crow is that it was the law and often the people who were um you know picked up for the sorts of crimes that would get them in just like did, did gary duncan touch in an unwanted way this this, uh, you know, one, essentially one of his neighbors. Um, yeah, he did. Is that the definition of battery? Yes, it is. And so there's a question about, you know, but, but like, in what context do we choose to arrest, prosecute and incarcerate somebody who's committed that act, right? Mm-hmm. And that, like, that's always been the question. That hasn't changed. That's not a segregation thing at all. It has nothing yeah. to do with segregation. It has to do with policing. It has to do with prosecution. It has to do with institutional power. Right. And those 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 issues have not changed at all. You know, would somebody like Gary Duncan get picked up for for touching a kid on the shoulder um, in, in a town where racial tensions are high, as they are in a lot of towns in this country? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I my other like other than writing books, my other gig is I am the assistant director of Shakespeare in prison here in Detroit. You know, and so I, I, I see <laughs> I work with a lot of people on the inside who um have you know lot whose whose life whose life stories are all over the place but it's not hard to see where um you know our fairly narrow construction of 
what is what is a crime and what we need to do to people who commit them um, is really pretty broken. It certainly uh, doesn't fix anything. So, it seems not to. <laughs> it, it, theoretically, I'm, I'm sure there's a percentage, and I have no idea what that might be, of people who in prison um, choose a path that actually does allow them to gain skills, to learn, and uh, to develop their character in a way that results in um, a different kind of life when they get back out. Um, uh, and, and then for others, it's just punishment and it, it absolutely doesn't do anything for, for people. But it's, I, I don't think that the system is built to try to promote that um, uh, repair of the factors in their lives that led to the crimes that got them sure. in jail. Well, and, and if it is, I mean, if it, if it is built for that, it's not doing a very good job of it. I mean, if we, as those of us who work in the, you know, sort of prison space often say like, look, if we, if we could incarcerate our way into a safer America, we'd have the safest country on the planet and we don't, yeah. but we have the most prisoners. We have the most, but we don't have um, the safest by any means. And um, again, I'm I'm somebody who really a simplistic notion, but it is so true that economic a lack of economic opportunity direct um, correlate to um, crime. You don't have economic sure. you don't have economic activity opportunity because you haven't. Uh, been taught the skills that it takes especially in our evolving economy um you're not you don't have an opportunity in that direction you're going to look for it elsewhere you've got to um think about survival you've got to think about your self-esteem you've, you've got to try to make something with your lives and it winds up being on the streets in too many cases i i, I want to ask the question it's kind of a unanswerable question in a way but the character of Richard Sobel that it took for him to take this on and to stay with it so long, and of um, uh, Gary uh, Duncan, are we fostering people who have that kind of depth of, of commitment and willingness to sacrifice? Certainly, it's, it's all over the news now in all, every emergency room in America and every hospital in America see that kind of, of commitment played out. But in general, is that being fostered? Or was that a was that a period when people are coming out of a different time with a whole different set of philosophical and, and um, civic uh, commitments? I think it's really important because because I think that um, so some of what happened was uh, a uh, a result of the the sort of time and milieu and you know the the, the civil rights movement on the one hand and, um, and 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 all of the sort of cultural ferment of the of this you know mid late sixties on the, on the other hand um, and that, that's certainly what drove Richard Sobel for instance to go down to to New Orleans was a sense of duty right and responsibility and then unlike most of his compatriots who did that he stayed he stayed for a long time and then he moved back decades later. Um, and, and really dedicated the rest of his life to doing this work. He never went back to his corporate job. He became one of the most prominent employment discrimination lawyers in the country and uh, really very innovative um, in that field and, and several others. And so I think there, we have a lot of innovative lawyers out there. Um, I think for a number of reasons, partly because law schools become so expensive and partly for other 
uh, for other reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's a little harder to get someone like Richard Sobel, who's third in his class at Columbia Law School, to you know take such a huge pay cut to to go down and and take uh, take civil rights cases in the South or or whatever. But there but there are a lot of people out there, and there are a lot. Of, you know, I look, I you know, report in this space. I know I know a lot of really brilliant, inventive, dedicated lawyers. Most of them, however. Um, are, I mean, apart from the ones who are working for the ACLU, for instance, or other big legacy organizations, a lot of them are, uh, a lot of them are public defenders, right, which is, which is great, but they tend to be the, the really um, sort of innovative public defenders are, tend to be concentrated in big cities, particularly in the North and West, because that's where you can make a living wage as a public defender. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to go into the whole, you know, Orleans public defender situation, but it's, you know, they're, they're doing a lot with a little there, but they're pretty overwhelmed. And so it's hard, you know, so there are a lot of people and the fight is all over the place, but folks, frankly, like the really talented lawyers are not decamping to where they're, you know, where, where they're really, really needed, which is like, you know, Battle Creek, Michigan, or, you know, Alexandria, Louisiana, and places like that, where um, you, know, you wouldn't even know about the abuses of power when they happen. You know, and that, and that was very much how Plaquemines Parish was at the time. Matthew, I, I have a feeling I could fill up about three shows with you not <laughs> without even taking a breath, but um, we are pretty much at the end of my time for yeah. um, uh, this interview. I, I'd like to, uh, I, I would definitely like to um, uh, continue a conversation with you in the future. Okay. And um, particularly, I would like to talk about the uh, public defender uh, situation in New Orleans. I'm, I'm superficially familiar with it, and I know that it's... Um, uh, it's not what it ought to be. Let's just say that. And um, I think it would be interesting to explore what it might take to uh, yeah. to fix it. And I think coming out of COVID, especially, there's there's going to be a lot of shakeup on the prisons yeah. because we do have um, people who are getting sick in jail. Um, we're looking at policies regarding their release. And uh, there's a back and forth on that. Um, a young man was uh, just released who uh, wound up dead on the streets within days, um, you know, uh, some kind of gang warfare, yeah. I suppose, retribution, whatever was going on there. So, um, you know, there's lots of issues about yeah. um, prison policy. So yeah. let's, um, let's plan on talking again. Right. Um, and the last thing I should say too, is that as, as you mentioned, Richard Sobel died um, about a week and a half ago. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, that in the midst of all of the sort of COVID frenzy, understandably, I think people haven't had a lot of bandwidth for, uh, for recognition of, of the work that he did. And I really, I really hope that sometime after things settle down, um, more people are able to, uh, to, to learn about the, the work that he did because, um, he, he really, he really is one of the, the kind of unsung heroes in, in equal justice law in the United States, particularly. In the um, yeah, we, we have actually a lot of unsung heroes uh, who we're going to have to honor when this is over, because um, I, if you watch the papers here and anywhere, actually, uh, where we have um, a lot of uh, people being caught up in, in, by this virus, um, we're losing people without their honoring. Um, yeah. Delta Justice a black teen, his lawyer, and their groundbreaking battle for civil rights in the South, um, published by Little Brown, um, published coming out on May 19th, is it? So uh, we're actually just pushing that back a little bit. I think most, uh, yeah. most books that are due out in the spring are getting bumped back a little bit. Watch for it, everybody. And um, I, I look forward to uh, further conversations with you. And um, thank you, Richard Sobel, for what you did here and, um, and for your life.
and uh, we will miss you. Thank you. Thank you. We are here with um, Delphio Marsalis um, of the very legendary and beloved musical family, the Marsalises, whose patriarch, Ellis, who we all um, know and love for many different reasons, has just passed. And unfortunately, he was, in fact, one of the victims of the COVID vi virus. Um, and I suppose maybe some other issues, I don't know if you will tell me, but um, I, I kind of wanted to just really pay tribute uh, to, to him and the family. And um, I, I wanted you to kind of share with us your experience as a son, as a musician, as a creative uh, of this other very important creative mentor for all of us, really, for this that he has taught, but for all of us. Right. Well, you know, my parents, I would say early on, since we grew up right around the civil rights movement and not long after, um, I, I would say that their plan was to prepare us to the best of their abilities and make sure that we had access to a lot of the opportunities that they didn't have. Their generation or the, the preceding generations just were not, they didn't have access to, to certain uh, opportunities. So the main thing was to make sure that we were prepared. And it happens that we decided to, to pursue music and which we find is a very good outlet. It's a great creative outlet. It's a great political outlet. And you know, my dad, he was really beloved, I think because of his honesty and he was the real deal. And when he played, there was a purity in his sound that we all strive as improvising jazz musicians to uh, accomplish. Yeah, and that's something that I think I mentioned to you uh, in a conversation that um, that aside from his importance musical one of the things I always appreciated about him was had opportunities under various circumstances to talk about with him over the years was his honesty. He he didn't um, BS. He he shared with you his perspective, um, and if it was critical, um, you heard his critical analysis. And when it was uh, really calling out the um, assets, he did that. Uh, I don't treasure many things more in life than that kind of. Um, deliberate honesty. Right. Well, the other thing is that he was not very self-serving. So it's not that his opinions or what he told you was tempered with any type of ideology that would benefit him. And that's the, you know, it's, I'm not sure how well he would fare, or I know how well he would have fared in politics, because a lot of times it's that. And, you know, right now we're at a point too where the, the country is so divided, uh, many times we're thinking about, well, what's in our best interest? But he was a great educator because he always believed in preparing his students with what was the best way to prepare them for their own individual success. It had nothing to do with the regard of, oh, Ellis Marcellus, and oh, you're a great teacher, or oh, it was just about what is best for this particular situation. Right, I can I can see that. Um, how how else would you describe his teaching method? What what was it about the way he dealt with so many musicians um, beyond 
um, his own sons, but so many that he taught at NOCA and elsewhere that had the impact of creating these, uh, really just one musical treasure after another. He had a good understanding of who each of his students were or was as people, as individuals. And he would always say, I don't teach jazz, I teach students. So he had a, a holistic approach. And if it's a, a student, for example, like Harry Connick Jr., he came in and Harry had a lot of experience playing in, in clubs. And so for someone like that, it was more about honing in the, the talent and I guess showcasing a, a different path, a different way to, to, to use his discipline, as opposed to maybe a student that came in and only studied in the schools, then it would might be the training would be more geared toward going out and playing in the clubs more, having an experience in front of audiences. And also he knew how to how to prepare he knew just what you needed. You know, he just by listening to a couple of notes, he knew, okay, for example, he might assign a certain song. And that song was designed to help the student solve certain problems. And then once those problems were solved, you're on to another song. And the way that he would also suggest certain musicians, it's based on the style. So, for example, if a, a trombonist came in and they just had an affinity to play maybe really fast notes or in that, that style, he might suggest J.J. Johnson or someone like Carl Fontana. Whereas if a student played more like a slow country blues type of sound, then he would recommend more of the Ellington trombone players on Al Grill, you know, so he would recommend uh, great musicians for you to study based on your natural inclinations. Right. That's, um, that's really interesting. And um, of, of the students that he worked with, um, can, can you point out any in particular uh, and, and, and what developed as their style that you feel can attribute to some extent to your dad. I don't know whether that's asking you to drill down too much on individual artists, but I'm just curious um, uh, as to, uh, again, his impact. I'm sorry, could you repeat that question for me? I'm sorry, there was some interference in the background so I can understand that you right. couldn't hear. Um, so what I'm saying is, um, it, it, can you uh, um, identify certain artists and and their style and speak to how your dad helped shape um that and, and, and so in other words um give me some examples of what you just said well as i mentioned with harry connick jr he came up with james booker and you know james booker had a very unique new orleans way of playing well, and, oh yeah so harry is a combination of kind of that james booker sound and then once he studied under my dad he really put together a lot of other ways of playing similar to how my dad played. So, you know, it gave him a, a better understanding of maybe how to play in a more modern context or to play standards with a different style. So that, that would probably be the, the, the easiest uh, person to look at. But you, you take someone like Terrence Blanchard now, uh, Terrence and Donald, they grew up uh, right behind Bradford and Winton. So when Bradford and Winton went to New York, 
kind of, they were playing with Art Blakey. So when Terrence was still in school, they were studying what the Art Blakey song, but, but in addition to that, Miles Davis, of course, who up to that point was the, the probably still the pivotal modern trumpeter. So there were certain aspects of what you had to know about that. So I would say for, for sure, when you hear Terrence play, you know, it's rooted in, you know, what Miles played, especially some of the things in the 60s. Uh, someone like uh, Donald Harrison, I wasn't there, so I can't say specifically what they were working on, but just based on how he plays, you know, uh, a lot of the great saxophone players, Charlie Parker and Sonny Stitt and John Coltrane, you know, these are the, the individuals. But I'm, I'm mentioning people that you didn't really require a lot. You know, it's almost like, you know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan comes to you, you know, you just have to point them in the right direction. Um, someone like Nicholas Payton, well, again, I, I can't really comment. Nicholas is, is a person that just really, he hears music a certain kind of way. And I would imagine that under my dad, it was about introducing him to other styles. So, you know, Nicholas just, he really could hear a traditional, the way of playing New Orleans traditional music. So someone like Nicholas, it, it wouldn't, I, I would imagine he wouldn't spend time saying, okay, you have to, we have to get you studying Louis Armstrong, or we have to get you, because Nicholas already had an affinity to that. So then it would yeah. be, okay, let's introduce you to Freddie Hubbard or Miles Davis or things that's going to enhance the palette of what, you, what you're uh, familiar with. What about you, Delphia? Well, you know, I never studied directly under my dad uh, mm -hmm. w when I was in school. But what I would say is that he understood that, that I have, my affinity is to play more in a melodic, a, a romantic kind of a fashion. So he always was telling me, man, balance, balance. You should do a ballad record. Forever he was telling me that. So we mm -hmm. finally did the last. Oh, yeah. Well, we recorded the last Southern Gentleman. And even though it was not all balanced, it was primarily balanced. And, uh, you know, that was a, a great experience because he'll recommend and recommend, but then he leaves it, he leaves it to you. Like he knows that I like more energetic, even though my style lends itself and my sound to playing slower ballad, those types of songs. I still like kind of the energetic songs. So for mm -hmm. me, it was a, a combination of, of things. Um, let's take that home. Let's talk about um, Ellis as father and general life guide opposed to as your musical uh, mentor. Um, what, was, what was Ellis like at home? What was he like as, as, as father? He was the same way. He was about setting you up for you to figure out the answer to things. Now, when we were younger, of course, like one thing that, that he did forever for me was to correct my my papers. If it's a term paper, it started off with the grammar. It started off with that. And then after grammar, it was sentence structure. So as my understanding developed, how he addressed what I was writing changed. And then as I wrote liner notes, he was really great at, at helping you to give what you were writing form. So he could mm -hmm. listen. And, and I mentioned uh, my first CD, Pontius Pilate's Decision. I had lengthy liner notes. And I'm reading them to him. And then I get to like the last paragraph. And he's like, man, that's the point of the line of notes. That needs to be earlier on. And I'm like, oh, so I'm oh, thinking differently. Oh, I'm thinking in, my, in my trade in journalism, they call that burying the lead. 
Right. Well, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm setting it up. What I had in mind was I'm setting up all the information. Then you get to the end and it's like, this is the punchline. Whereas he was saying, no, you let people know up front, this is the point. And then you, you expand on it or expound. So, you know, it, it's things like that. And, but I always would call him. That's one thing that I really will miss is just calling him and reading him. See, man, I need a word. I need a word. And we go through the words. We could say, well, you need more than a word. And he'd say, so, you know, but I would say that he would always still allow me to arrive at the conclusions, but give me certain options. Uh, so I, that's what I would say is, is his teaching style in general. When he taught us chess, for example, you know, eight or nine years old, he'd say, wow. sit down. And then we sit down, he says, okay, you want to protect the back row. And then instead of giving us the whole thing, he said, move a piece. And we move it. And he said, no, you can't do that. Why not? Well, you can't. You can only move it here or there. So it was, it, we were learning in the process of him beating us. So by the time I finally did beat him many years later, I felt really like an accomplishment. I'm like, I'm, I'm a kid again because I'm like, finally, you know, I'm in my 40s and I finally beat my dad at chess. Uh, but that was his way. He didn't sugarcoat it. He wasn't here. A lot of times we do that with kids. It's like, oh, we're going to let the kids win. So they have this false sense of security. But, you know, my dad kept it real. He, he wasn't trying to sugarcoat it. And it has a lot to do with, I would say, the, the circumstances that he grew up in. And with his sons, it was, you know, we're not going to make believe that, that something is awaiting you that's not awaiting you. So for him, again, it was, it was important for us to be prepared. I um, think I remember correctly that he was a resident of, I want to say, the Lafitte project in the early days when it was actually fashioned as um, a really uh, a community that was an improvement over the neighborhoods around it. Uh, might not have been Lafitte, it might have been uh, one of those, but he did talk about what those projects were like in the early days as being um, refuges from neighborhoods and not the, what they came to be known of as um, in, in later years. But does that ring any bells with you? Yeah, or I can't comment to that. I know that my mother did grow up in the St. Bernard. My dad, I just, I don't recall that that's where he mm -hmm. grew up. Uh, uh, was there, but I know my grandfather early on, you know, was a proprietor of the the first Negro proprietor of a, of a gas station in the 40s oh. on uh, on uh, South Claiborne Avenue. So his father was a, a successful businessman early on. I see. Now that now that said, uh, you know, again, I I can't comment on things that he that he said or his he was there in his interpretation of it, but um, I would hear my uncle on my mother's side and my mother talking about the, the project housing was was different kind of than what it became yeah. and but i think that we as a country changed a lot so yeah. that also has something to do with it but you know there were there were issues but there was more of a sense of community from my understanding back then up until the, the segregation the integration started and then a whole new set of problems came with integration Right. That's, uh, that was kind of one of the things he was trying to say. Um, Delphio, it must be particularly hard 
to have lost him in the middle of this COVID crisis that we, which is so um, stressful and uh, scary and um, it, the uncertainty that we experienced in Katrina, this is, is that the nth or squared. And um, so it, this must be a hard time for you. I mean, you know, you know I don't want to sound cold or, or callous, but no, it, it's not because he, he always prepared us for that time when it would come. So I mean, he, just if, if you really knew him and he approached life with the understanding that there was death. So he always was like, man, just make your peace with whatever's going on around you. Because once you go, that's it. So just knowing how he was in his approach, I'm not saying, you know, it's easy, never easy to lose a parent or a loved one, but knowing how he thought about it, yeah, but the type of burial we had for him is probably what he would have preferred because he was just not about the pop and the circumstance. Right. You know, so, you know, I mean, it's tough, but it's not any more tough because we have this um, pandemic going on. I'm going to, because uh, this is kind of the end of our first part of the two-part interview, and we'll come back uh, shortly and talk um, uh, a little bit more about the music scene in general as it's developing right now and, and your perception of it. You've stuck it out more about that special person um, to the family, uh, to family of musicians, to the family of the city. And um, uh, I look forward to uh, continuing our conversation in part two. Yes, ma'am. We are with Amy Lesson now, and um, Amy has too rich a bio for me to just say, Amy Lesson, educator. Uh, so I'm going to have her tell you just very briefly um, her field of interest. Amy Lesson, who is going to be talking with us today about really the impact of poverty on healthcare and how what we're seeing in the numbers right now, which anybody who's paid any attention at all has noticed that a high percentage of the people who are dying um, in New Orleans and other cities are African-American, and there's a reason for that. But before we get to that, Amy, who are you? Uh, so, um, yeah, Amy Lesson, I am a, an associate professor in the Minority Health and Health Disparities Research Center at Dillard University here in New Orleans, and um, my background is in uh, environmental science and um, my interest is linking environmental issues with human issues and at Dillard I'm doing that partially in the context of environmental health but I also do a lot of environmental justice work so the health disparities piece as well fits within um, the social justice and environmental justice piece that I, I am interested in. So I'm going to start our conversation off with a kind of rhetorical, um, challenging question. There are those people who are out there saying, oh, disparity, shmarity, you know, people who don't take care of themselves and don't eat right, uh, you know, it's their fault. Um, so um, let, let's address that um, mindset and uh, talk about um, what does uh, put people in a higher probability of of being having the underlying illnesses that they are 
pointing out now are the more of a contributing factor to whether somebody um, dies from COVID than age. That that just came out today. Right. Well, yes, certainly um, it's true that um, not taking care of oneself and eating badly contributes to poor health, but anybody can do that. Anybody is capable of um, eating poorly and not taking care of oneself, and you could be very wealthy and um, a very wealthy white person and do that. The difference is that people who are poor um, are not able to get the health care generally that they required. So just following your hypothetical situation, if you are a wealthy person of any ethnicity who is not taking care of yourself and you're able, you have health insurance or you have the financial means to go to the doctor every year for your checkup and you actually do that, um, you are going to be able, better able to address your health issues than somebody who doesn't have health insurance or has a job that won't allow them to go to the doctor regularly because they can't get out of work. Um, or many reasons why people uh, who are poor may not go to the doctor regularly. Um, so just taking your example, um, even if somebody doesn't have a healthy lifestyle, if you have financial means, you're much more able to address the health uh, consequences of that than if you're poor. And there are many other ways to talk about this, but just that's just a to answer your question in terms of wealth. There's more and more of an emphasis um, at least that the theoretical, if not the um, practical level, uh, of focusing on the issues of preventive care instead of uh, winding up in the emergency room. And um, also uh, finding other um, health institutional uh, places to seek health care other than the emergency room, which is about the worst place to go. Yes. If that's the case, why isn't that message being addressed institutionally? What, what's holding us back from doing the right thing here? Um, you know, I think that our healthcare system and the way it's um, structured, I think that um, the type of health insurance people have, um, for example, actually, I mean, I'll be honest, uh, you know, there are all these high deductible plans, for example, that are kind of more catastrophic and so and I honestly I myself have a high deductible plan but I have the financial means I'm not wealthy but I have the financial means to go to the doctor if I, if I need to but let's say you either don't have health insurance or you have a very high deductible plan you're not going to go regularly if you don't have any um, disposable or extra income or income uh, to, to spend on going to the doctor and so the only time you're going to go to the doctor is when you absolutely have to um, and especially, for example, think about if you're a um, blue collar worker and you don't have um, any sick days, if you get sick and you're terrified of uh, losing a day of work, then you're going to go to urgent care and try to get the care that you need. Um, you know, if the choice is, are you going to put food on the table tonight or are you going to go get your yearly checkup? Um, often the case will be that you'll choose to put food on the table tonight and you'll defer your preventive care. And you're right. I mean, it's much more, uh, I get, I don't do this research, but what I've read and what I understand from reading other people's research is that it's much less expensive societally. Um, and, it, and I mean, really individually to go to the doctor, pay for 
or have your insurance pay for a yearly checkup and maybe some blood work as opposed to you land in the emergency room because you're extremely sick because you've been putting off going to the doctor, you can't afford to go to the doctor, and then you need a lot of expensive tests and a lot of care or maybe to actually go into the hospital. So everything you're saying is absolutely true. So it, it, it really was amazing that it, it was so hard uh, to persuade people, and we still haven't persuaded everybody in every state, that if you have um, the Medicaid expansion that uh, we were able to get passed in Louisiana, um, and, and as I said, many, especially southern states, have none. So um, that saves money because it, exactly it allows people to come through the system uh, and, and prevent the development of disease to the point of it being much more expensive to treat. So it, it's, it's bewildering to me why people wouldn't see the wisdom of that and support it. And, and, and I think one of the issues we have, and this is more of a universal thing than it is limited to just uh, the healthcare question, is that we're still figuring out how to communicate with people who have been bamboozled, frankly, by some older um, dogma, uh, political dogma that they think... Um, relates to their uh, grudge, let's say, against how they've been treated in their lives, because I would say that most people who are um, really negative about taking care of others um, have been uh, dealt some bad cards. What's the most uh, targeted, effective way that we could attack this disparity? Um, I mean, in terms of, I mean, so there are racial health disparities in there, um, wealth uh, and income, you know, socioeconomic health disparities. And in terms of, and they're, they're related and also separate in, in a sense, um, you know, in terms of the socioeconomic uh, health disparities, um, you know, I think what a lot of people, the, the lift yourself up from your bootstraps, don't accept help from anyone mentality that a lot of people in the United States have what it misses is um, that you never know what's going to happen and that a tragedy could befall you at any time. And I actually think, um, you know, so to me, a stitch in time saves nine in the sense that, um, you know, I think your Medicaid expansion example is a perfect example of how if you invest the money in Medicaid and allow people to get preventive care, you're going to save a huge amount of money in the future. And in this case, for example, if we had, um, you know, there are many people who I believe probably are against things like welfare and against things like certain kinds of uh, social, uh, social safety nets who have never, ever found themselves in a situation of, of needing help and who are needing help right now um, and never expected to. And so, you know, this idea that we don't need to spend our money to help others um, you know, you never know when you're going to need help. Um, so to me, in order to address these health disparities, we need to invest in programs, organizations, and policies that are going to um, set up systems that will help people when they do need it, or set up systems to prevent things from getting worse or prevent worse health issues, um, and that will save us money. So both of those things will save us money in the long term. I mean, for example, right now, people who are finding themselves out of work um, they're probably not going to be able to invest in their health. And so that's going to have repercussions down the line. So in my opinion, 
And I think there's a lot of research that other people have done that bear this out. The more investment you can do in the short term really saves you money and uh, gives better health outcomes in the long term. But I, I come back to, um, you know, that's the goal. Um, so thank you for uh, clarifying that. But um, how are we going to persuade people who feel, again, that they've been dealt some bad cards um, to to see the wisdom of of helping others as a way of helping themselves. How would you, have you had conversations with people who have that point of view that they don't really want to have to help others because they feel like we should all help ourselves? I mean, when I have those conversations, the only, well, one of the ways, it's unfortunate, but I think often a way that people have their consciousness raised about this is by having somebody close to them or having themselves be affected. And um, I, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I'm not sure. And I think that, that we're in potentially in a situation like that right now. And when they themselves are affected, often they're able to connect dots that they weren't able to connect before. But otherwise, my experience is that it can be very hard to persuade people who don't have any personal experience with a problem to connect the kind of dots that you're talking about. I wish I had a better answer for you. What are you working on in, in the short term and the long term um, that you hope is going to make a difference? Well, some of the things that I'm working on now, I'm working with an organization in the Seventh Ward called uh, Healthy Community Services with my partner, Angela Chalk, and from the Seventh Ward and my partner from uh, the University of Michigan and Arbor, Derek uh, Van Burkle, who um, we're doing some work on how green infrastructure and tree planting can help um, some of the heat issues that are going on in the city. Um, Angela is very concerned about flooding and heat and how um, rain gardens and tree plantings and other kinds of green infrastructure can help that. And so we did a very tiny survey, like a preliminary survey last summer, asking people in the neighborhood, in her very in her small area of the Seventh Ward, um, things that they're concerned about in terms of heat and um, trying to measure some of the, uh, the heat um, in various parts of the neighborhood and she's doing a lot of tree planting. So that's one thing that I think um, that I'm doing. What's the name of that program again, please? Well, so the, the organization I'm working with is a community-based organization called uh, the Seventh Ward Healthy Community Services, which is run by Angela Chaw. Um, another thing that I'm interested in working on is um, I have been part of a project that was funded by the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative that came out of the uh, Deepwater Horizon Settlement, uh, working with uh, communities in Plaquemines Parish, Lafourche Parish, and in Bayou Labatry, Alabama, looking at the impacts that the Deepwater Horizon oil spill and also um, other disasters have had on uh, people's resilience, um, their um, attitudes about preparedness and there's a branch of the study that I wasn't involved in uh, directly where uh, some of my collaborators trained community health workers in those three communities and other people on our team did a health related phone survey and through working some of the community partners on that project um, in Plaquemines and Lafourche and in Battery, Alabama I've had a lot of conversations with people on the ground there um, especially about mental health and I'm really interested right now in trying to seek some funding to collaborate with community-based organizations on addressing some of the mental health issues that uh, 
the many repeated cascading disasters we've seen on the coast in Louisiana and southeastern Louisiana and the Gulf Coast um, have produced. So, for example, um, a wonderful woman named Julie Olson, who's the director of the only mental health provider uh, services provider in all of Plaquemines Parish, which I believe is called the Community Care Centers in Plaquemines Parish. Um, she told me that there's an astronomically high suicide rate in Plaquemines. And um, I've also had conversations with some of our partners about increases in domestic violence after some of these disasters, and especially since the oil spill, um, that may be um, exacerbated by things like unemployment and people having financial difficulties. So I really think that there's, um, and, and our partners on this project, when they did the phone-based survey, they found that depression and anxiety was a huge issue um, in coastal, uh, these coastal parishes and counties. Wow. Yeah. So that's something that I'm really interested in. And I think it's a very, there's a lot of stigma around dealing with mental health and with domestic violence. And so that's something I really want to pursue that I think is very important. Yeah, it, it, it certainly would make a difference if, if people uh, better understood, again, the linkage between circumstances that they're dealing with and um, how they express their um, anger and, and um, uh, I guess, yes. sense of, of victimness, uh, what's the right word? Um, yeah. Uh, um, so, um, Amy, um, I have to close off um, because I do have... A, um, uh, uh, we're almost out of time, but um, give me just one way that people who are listening to us now can help. I mean, uh, just uh, just one particular uh, a program um, or initiative or um, way that uh, kind of just the ordinary citizen on on a block can can. Um, contribute to uh, addressing our, our health and especially the health of people who have less resources? I think right now, especially because there's so much consciousness being raised because of um, the health disparities and the racial health disparities in how COVID-19 is affecting Louisianans, I think right now and ongoing would be a great time for people to put pressure on people in city council, in the state legislature, and in the governor's office to address these health disparities in terms of funding, in terms of programs. I think the only way that we're gonna really attack this is to be very honest with ourselves about what's happening and why. And I think that this is a perfect opportunity right now. Unfortunately, it's a tragic opportunity for people to start getting a little bit more active and really um, demand and, and say that um, this kind of tragic health disparity is not something that we are willing to tolerate in Louisiana and to be putting pressure on our legislature, legislators to so, address this. I think. So, so, just, so just to interpret that optimistically, certainly um, there is no doubt that Katrina and Deepwater Horizon raised people's awareness of um, environmental issues. And I think yes. that there's a, been a, a, a sea change, so to speak, in um, thinking about that. And I do think that coming out of COVID, we're going to have um, some very much more enlightened thinking about um, how we can uh, protect our health for ourselves and others. Amy, thank you so much. And listen, stay in thank touch. You. And as your um, research uh, continues, please come back to us and um, help us understand um, how things are uh, changing. Hopefully they will and um, give us some further thoughts on it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Thank you so much. Okay. I appreciate it. 
This has been um, another one of those shows that has really um, taken a deep dive in with some very, very interesting people. I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. I really enjoyed it. Um, this has been Crosstown Conversations. This is Jean Nathan on WBOK, what people are talking about.